welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the hepatobiliary module from the General Surgical Curriculum, and the operation or topic we'll be covering today is pancreatic cancer. So pancreatic cancer is the fourth leading cause of cancer death in men and women worldwide. The incidence of pancreatic cancer is increasing, and at presentation, only about 15% of patients are candidates for resection or have resectable disease. When I'm talking about pancreatic cancer, I'm specifically talking about pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, and this accounts for more than 95% of pancreatic malignancies. These tumors, as the name suggests, originate from the ductal cells of the pancreas. You can also get tumors arising from the neuroendocrine elements of the pancreas, and these are neuroendocrine tumors, which I won't be talking about in this episode, and tumors from the mesenchymal elements are very rare. Other differential diagnoses for a solid tumor in the pancreas includes lymphoma, autoimmune pancreatitis, so IgG4-related disease, which is important to consider, focal chronic pancreatitis, a pseudopapillary neoplasm, or metastatic disease. And the two most common tumors that metastasize to the pancreas are renal cell carcinoma and melanoma. The risk factors for pancreatic cancer are modifiable and non-modifiable. The two most important modifiable risk factors are smoking, which has a 70% increased risk of developing pancreatic adenocarcinoma than non-smokers, and obesity. Others include diabetes, occupational exposures to asbestos, pesticides, some dry cleaning agents, and radiation, chronic pancreatitis, and alcohol abuse. Non-modifiable risk factors include increasing age, so this is most common in the 7th and 8th decades of life. And the other important non-modifiable risk factor is a family history or an inherited germline mutation that increases your risk of developing a pancreatic cancer. The ones to know for pancreatic cancer are the BRCA genes, so the hereditary breast and ovarian cancer genes, and BRCA2 increases your risk of pancreatic cancer by three and a half to 10 times. The next is Lynch syndrome, um, also known as hereditary non-polyposis colorectal cancer, and this also has an increased risk of pancreatic cancer. Familial atypical multiple mole melanoma also has an increased risk of pancreatic cancer, and this is thought to be a mutation in the P16 gene, and this increases your risk of 20 to 30 times of developing pancreatic cancer. Piotr-Jagers is the other one to know about, and this is a mutation in the STK11 gene, and this has a 75 to 130 times increased risk of pancreatic cancer. There is a syndrome associated with the development of pancreatitis, which is a mutation in the PRSS1 gene. And because chronic pancreatitis increases your risk of pancreatic cancer, this is also a genetic syndrome that increases your risk of developing pancreatic cancer. The pathophysiology or development of pancreatic cancer can happen in three different ways. 
The first one is a stepwise progression from pancreatic ductal intraepithelial neoplasia all the way through to pancreatic cancer. The second is conversion of an IPMN into cancer. And the third is development of a malignancy from a mucinous cystic adenoma, which we talked about in our pancreatic cystic lesion podcast. In terms of the progression of pancreatic ductal intraepithelial neoplasia through to cancer, this is a multi-step progression. So it starts with pancreatic um, intraepithelial neoplasia type 1A, which is where you have presence of columnar and mucin-producing ductal epithelium, going to 1B, which is where there's the development of a papillary architecture, to pancreatic intraepithelial neoplasia type 2, where you get evidence of nuclear atypia in those cells, and pancreatic intraepithelial neoplasia type 3, which is also known as carcinoma in situ. And this is where you get marked cytological atypia and a complete loss of polarity of the cells. This progression is also associated with specific um, genetic changes, which in the same way that a colorectal polyp or adenoma will progress to carcinoma with the loss of specific genes or changes in specific genes, the same thing happens in this pathway from intraepithelial neoplasia to invasive ductal adenocarcinoma. So one of the earliest changes that's seen in this progression, usually from normal epithelium to um, pancreatic intraepithelial neoplasia type 1A or 1B, is a mutation in the KRAS gene. And KRAS is a um, proto-oncogene, so this is a gene that usually helps to regulate signals for the cell's growth and maturation. And so a mutation in the KRAS gene means that this means that this KRAS protein can't function normally and it encourages atypical proliferation of the cells. An important thing to know about the nomenclature of KRAS is that a KRAS wild type means that the KRAS is not mutated, but KRAS positive means that it's positive for a mutation. And a KRAS positive or mutated KRAS is associated with a poor prognosis in a number of cancers. The next changes is basically loss of certain tumor suppressor genes. And so this includes the CDKN2A, the P16, and the P53 genes. And as these tumor suppressors are lost, the accumulation of these abnormalities progress this process towards invasive adenocarcinoma. So how do patients with pancreatic cancer present and how should you work them up? As with most of these diagnoses, patients can present asymptomatically or symptomatically. Asymptomatically, they may be identified to have a lesion in the pancreas or metastatic disease on imaging. In terms of symptoms, patients will present with things that we would identify as red flags. So painless jaundice or pruritus, unexplained weight loss, upper abdominal or back pain, unexplained or new diabetes or a sudden deterioration in diabetes, nausea and vomiting if there's duodenal obstruction, pancreatitis, and especially in older patients, if they have an attack of pancreatitis and you don't know the cause, then you should be doing a CT in this group to rule out an occult pancreatic malignancy and steatorrhea. 
Clinical signs that you may see include jaundice, palpable hepatomegaly in the setting of metastases. You may palpate an epigastric mass. Cachexia is quite common in this population. And you may be able to palpate a distended gallbladder, and this is called Corvazia's sign. Some textbook signs of advanced disease include being able to palpate Virchow's node, which is the left supraclavicular node, periumbilical lymphadenopathy, also known as the systemary Joseph nodule, peritoneal dissemination with perirectal tumor deposits, and you may be able to feel a bloomer's shelf on digital rectal examination, and also ascites, suggesting peritoneal carcinomatosis. So how do you work up a patient you suspect has a pancreatic adenocarcinoma? So firstly, obviously, a history and examination like we've just talked about. And also, importantly, you need to identify what the patient's comorbidities are and what their performance status is because this factors in pretty significantly into their treatment options. You can do some investigations including blood tests. So for blood tests, you want to have a look at their liver function tests to determine how obstructed they may be, so how much of a biliary obstruction they may have. You'd also want to check their coagulation studies because biliary obstruction can lead to abnormalities of the INR. It's good to test a lipase to exclude pancreatitis, especially if patients are presenting with pain. A fasting glucose and a HbA1c to assess for diabetes. And an IgG4 level is also important if you suspect autoimmune pancreatitis. A CA199 is the tumor marker typically talked about for pancreatic adenocarcinoma. This is important because it both is correlated with the um, prognosis and can be used to monitor during treatment to assess a response to treatment. It may also be indicative of metastatic disease or occult metastatic disease. It's important to be aware that a CA199 level can be elevated in the setting of biliary obstruction. And so this is something patients with pancreatic cancer may present with. And so this level should be checked once the biliary obstruction has been resolved again to make sure that you're getting an accurate result. The other important thing to know about CA199 is that about 10% of patients don't secrete it because they lack the Lewis antigen in order to actually create the enzyme. So it's good to know that early on because you obviously won't be able to use it as a marker to monitor treatment response. In terms of prognosis, the levels do correlate with survival. And in the American guidelines, they actually talk about the level of CA199 in the absence of jaundice being suggestive of curative disease and a factor that needs to be considered in whether a pancreatic cancer may be resectable. The actual number of what the CA199 needs to be to be suspicious of whether there's metastatic disease that you're not seeing is, is quite controversial. I've heard some people say that levels below 1 or 200 are probably a good sign and anything over 500 is probably a bad sign and definitely anything over 1,000 is significant, um, but the cutoffs are debated. The next type of investigations you might think about doing is some imaging and you want to both stage the primary cancer as well as stage the patient to see whether or not there's any metastatic disease. 
The baseline staging investigation for a pancreatic cancer is a triple phase CT scan with a pancreatic protocol, which means they take thin one millimeter slices through the pancreas. This scan should also complete imaging, so making sure that the chest, abdomen and pelvis are completely imaged to look for metastatic disease. Some of the findings that you might see on a CT scan include the double duct sign. So this is where you have both a dilated common bile duct and pancreatic duct, and this indicates an obstruction in the head of the pancreas. Pancreatic cancers on CT will typically appear as a hypodense poorly defined mass, and they often have surrounding desmoplastic reaction. They often don't enhance well on the arterial imaging and then will often become isodense in the delayed imaging. The important things that you want to look at when you're looking at imaging of a pancreatic cancer are the relationship to the vascular structures. And we'll talk about this a little bit later, but this basically relates to whether the tumor is going to be resectable or not. The structures you're interested in are the arteries and the veins. And the arteries we look at are the superior mesenteric artery, the celiac axis, and the hepatic artery. And the important veins to look at are the superior mesenteric vein and the superior mesenteric vein portal vein confluence and, of course, the portal vein itself. In terms of other things to look at, you should be looking at the regional lymph nodes, looking for lymphadenopathy, any evidence of distant metastatic disease and pancreatic cancer will often go to the liver or the lungs, and also any vascular anomalies because this is going to feed into any surgical planning that you may have. MRI is potentially used in pancreatic cancer, but it's not rebated in Australia. It doesn't give you a lot more information than a good pancreatic protocol CT would give you about the tumor and its relationship to other structures. But if there's any question, then it may be done as an additional imaging modality. The only real benefit it has is that it will have better sensitivity at detecting sub-centimeter liver metastases. PET scan is another imaging modality we often do for cancers, but it's not standard of care yet for pancreatic cancer, and it's not rebated in Australia. The American guidelines don't appear to recommend it, but the NICE guidelines, which I think are European, do recommend PET scan in staging of pancreatic cancer. So maybe this is something we'll see more of in the future. Only about 75% of pancreatic cancers are FDG avid, but it may change management in up to 10 to 15% of cases. And specifically, you're looking for um, evidence of other or occult metastatic disease. The next type of investigation that may be used for pancreatic cancer is endoscopic ultrasound with biopsy or ERCP and potentially stenting. In terms of endoscopic ultrasound, its main role is in acquiring tissue for a biopsy. This isn't necessarily mandatory if you're going straight to surgery, although obviously if you're going to put somebody through a Whipple's, it's nice to have pathology before that. But if a patient's having neoadjuvant treatment, it is mandatory to have a tissue diagnosis. It can have false negatives, um, especially with the FNA biopsies. You may miss the tumor and it will only alter treatment in a small percentage of patients. So in patients who have a history of chronic alcohol use and maybe chronic pancreatitis or potentially IgG4 disease, which is masquerading as a mass and could be incorrectly diagnosed as a cancer, it may change your treatment. 
at our institution as well, EUS usually gives you good local pictures and can potentially add to the information about involvement of adjacent vascular structures. The role of ERCP is a little bit controversial. Obviously, a proportion of these patients are going to present with jaundice, but the question is whether these patients definitely need an ERCP. In terms of the indication for an ERCP and stent preoperatively, Patients who have cholangitis will need decompression of their biliary tree in order to treat their sepsis. If patients are having neoadjuvant chemotherapy and are jaundiced, then they will need their biliary tree unblocked prior to their neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Unblocking the biliary tree, especially for a patient that's going into major surgery potentially has some benefits in that you're going to improve their coagulopathy by improving the bile drainage and you're also potentially going to help with their nutrition um, because obviously if you have no bile you're not going to be able to digest your food as well. If patients are really jaundiced so bilirubin is over 100, 150, 200, the cutoff is debated, then it's usually pretty well agreed that a patient should have an ERCP. But for patients who are only mildly jaundiced, there's an argument that by doing an ERCP and opening up the ampulla, you're contaminating the biliary tree. And there's been randomized control trials that have demonstrated an increased risk of perioperative infectious complications with the Whipples for patients who've had preoperative biliary stenting. And so this specifically relates to cholangitis and wound infections. Um, and also doing an ERCP can cause pancreatitis and a patient who has had a bout attack of pancreatitis, it's going to be more difficult to do pancreatic surgery on. So I think individual patient factors need to be considered both about how bad their bilirubin is, what their clinical situation is, what their treatment pathway is going to be, and also Different institutions may have a different preference about whether or not they routinely or selectively drain patients preoperatively. The only other thing to mention is that if a patient has a malignant biliary stricture, at the time of ERCP, they can take ductal brushings and that cytology may also help with the diagnosis of an adenocarcinoma. Talking about the pathology of a pancreatic adenocarcinoma under the microscope, so microscopically, you're going to see abnormal glands and ducts formation with atypical nuclei, loss of the gland differentiation with more of the nests or single cells. And also typically pancreatic adenocarcinoma has a very desmoplastic stroma, so a fibrotic reaction to the tumor. On immunohistochemistry, these tumors may stain positive for cytokeratin 7 and 20. The last investigation I briefly want to mention is staging laparoscopy. This is obviously done routinely for lower esophageal and gastric cancers, and the question is whether it should be done for pancreatic cancers. In my institution, staging laparoscopy is done for selected patients. So these are patients who have an increased likelihood of intra-abdominal dissemination. So patients who have clinically very large tumors, ascites on their imaging, very high CA199 levels. Again, the number is debated, but somewhere over a thousand probably would be indicated. Small indeterminate liver or peritoneal lesions on CT that you want to have a better look at. Staging laparoscopy is not indicated to help with local staging because you don't get a good view of the tumor. 
um, but it may be helpful to detect small volume metastatic disease. There's no evidence to do cytology or washings at the time of diagnostic laparoscopy for pancreatic cancer. So I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about the staging of pancreatic cancer because I found this really difficult to understand when I was looking it up. There is a TNM staging system for pancreatic cancer, but I don't see this used that much in clinical practice. I'll briefly run through it so you know what it is. The T staging is based on the size of the tumor. So T1 is less than 2 centimeters, T2 is 2 to 4 centimeters, T3 is more than 4 centimeters, and T4 is an unresectable primary tumor. So this is where it involves the celiac axis or the SMA. N0 is no regional lymph node mets, N1 is 1 to 3 regional lymph nodes, and N2 is 4 or more regional lymph nodes involved, and M1 is distant metastatic disease. So I said that the TNM staging system isn't used that frequently in clinical practice, and what I see a lot more instead is the use of specific terminology that splits pancreatic cancer up into four different groups. These four groups are called resectable, borderline resectable, locally advanced, and metastatic. And as you can imagine, this is quite clinically relevant because putting them into one of these four categories will correlate pretty well with the sorts of treatment modalities or treatment sequence that the patient is going to receive. So I'm going to run through each of these four groups, but I also just want to put in a little caveat that the specific definitions of which vessels and how much is going to vary between institutions, and it depends a little bit on what the institution deems resectable based on their local experience or expertise. The other concept I want to introduce here as well, which I think is quite a nice theme or a nice way of thinking about resectability of pancreatic cancer, is the concept of A, B, and C. So A has to do with the anatomy of the tumor and which vessels are involved. B has to do with the biology of the tumor. So looking at features that may correlate with the biology, such as the level of CA199, or suspicious features on imaging like lymphadenopathy that make you think that maybe the tumor has spread past the primary tumor. And C has to do with condition. So this is looking at the performance status of the patient or comorbidities that they may have. And that's something else that should be considered in the decision-making about whether a tumor is or isn't going to be resectable. So the first group is resectable. So these are tumors that are considered localized and are clearly resectable. So if we go through our A, B, and C for resectability, from an anatomy perspective, resectable tumors are tumors where there's no interface between the tumor and any of the major mesenteric vasculature. So when we're talking about the veins, you want a patent SMV portal vein confluence, And the AHPBA goes further to say that there needs to be no radiographic evidence of portal vein or superior mesenteric vein abutment, distortion, tumor thrombus, or venous encasement. 
In terms of the arteries, there needs to be no direct tumor extension to the hepatic artery, celiac axis, or SMA. And they talk about being able to see a clear fat plane around these vessels. From a biology point of view, there needs to be no suggestion that the patient has occult metastatic disease. So they can't have any lymphadenopathy. And they also can't have a really elevated CA199, although we've already talked about the fact that the exact number cutoff is debated. And remember that level also needs to be calculated when the patient isn't jaundiced. Obviously, systemic metastatic disease such as liver or lung mets would also make this a tumor where the biology deemed it unresectable. The other thing to consider is the patient has to have a satisfactory clinical condition, so they need to be well enough to have treatment. Often in the setting of a resectable cancer, although we will talk about this a bit later on, this would involve an operation, but also they have to be well enough to undergo systemic chemotherapy. So the next of those four groups we were going to talk about is the borderline resectable group. And this is a group where if you went straight to surgery, an R2 resection is likely. So let's run through our A, B, and C again, but this time for these borderline resectable tumors. So the A is the anatomy. From an anatomy point of view, borderline resectable involves different criteria for the different vessels. So let's start with the veins. You can have venous involvement of the superior mesenteric vein or the portal vein, and this can be distortion or narrowing or even occlusion of the vein, as long as there is suitable vessel proximally and distally that will allow you to safely resect the area of involved vein and then to reconstruct it. The arteries are less generous in terms of their definition, so you can have focal abutment, so less than 180 degrees of the circumference of the SMA or the celiac. And you can have sort of higher involvement, so more than 180 degrees of the hepatic artery, as long as it's only a short segment. There are some centers I know that will do arterial resections and reconstructions, and there's others that don't do this. And I think the evidence is that if you're starting to involve an arterial reconstruction in your Whipple's resection, that the likelihood of complications and morbidity or mortality is unacceptably high or very high. So it would have to be done at specific centers that have proven experience and satisfactory outcomes, I guess, for these patients. The other anatomical factor to be considered is involvement of adjacent resectable organs, such as the stomach, transverse colon or kidney. So you could potentially do an on-block resection of those organs with the tumor and achieve an R0 resection. Again, the biology or B considerations are the same as with resectable. So if you have biology that suggests metastatic disease, such as you have radiology that's suspicious for lymphadenopathy, or you have a elevated CA199 level in the absence of jaundice that suggests disseminated disease, and again, the cutoff is not set in stone, then these may be signs that this is a borderline resectable tumor and um, you should proceed as such. And then the other thing to continue Sitter is the condition of the patient. So does this patient have a performance status or comorbidities that could be reversed or treated prior to considering surgery? 
The third group is locally advanced. Tumors that fit into this locally advanced group are patients who have encasement, so more than 180 degrees of the arterial vessels, so the SMA or the celiac axis, or an occluded vein, either superior mesenteric vein or portal vein, with no technical option for resection or reconstruction. These patients, even if they get neoadjuvant chemo, will pretty much never be resectable or not able to achieve um, an R0 resection. So these are considered locally advanced tumors. And obviously, the metastatic group has evidence of metastatic disease. So that was a lot of information. Just to summarize a couple of general points or considerations, basically, these tumors are going to be unresectable if they're a distant metastatic disease. If you're not going to be able to achieve an R0 resection, if there's unreconstructable venous involvement, and if the patient's going to require an arterial resection, this is going to significantly increase their morbidity and there's limited supportive data for this. So in most centers, this wouldn't be advocated for. So I guess one quick thing to mention is that the reason we worry so much about the resectability of pancreatic cancer is because the margins of the tumor at resection has one of the biggest impacts on survival out of any of the considerations. So if you can achieve an R0 resection with more than a millimeter of margin, then the median survival is 35 months. But if you have an R0 resection with a less than one millimeter margin, the median survival is 16 months. And if you have an R1 resection, so a microscopically positive margin, then the median survival is only 14 months. Moving on now to talk about the management of pancreatic cancer. The treatment of pancreatic cancer is multimodal because pancreatic cancer is considered a micrometastatic disease at presentation. It's pretty obvious that this is the case when we look at the overall survival of patients who have what's considered resectable cancer. So you remove the tumor completely with a clear margin and then Despite that, a significant proportion of patients will recur with metastatic disease. And early on, there was an adjuvant chemotherapy trial called the CONCO trial, which established that there is an overall survival giving adjuvant chemotherapy to patients who have resected pancreatic cancer, even in the absence of evidence of metastatic disease at the time of diagnosis, that again proves that there probably is metastatic disease that just hasn't been detected at the time of surgery. The last piece of evidence to mention in regards to it being micrometastatic diagnosis is that stage 1A tumors, so these are patients with T1 tumors that are N0, M0, the five-year survival for these patients is only 39%. There's a bit of controversy at the moment regarding this concept of metastatic disease because if that's the agreed on I guess, understanding that these patients probably have micrometastatic disease at diagnosis, then the argument exists that maybe these patients should have upfront neoadjuvant chemotherapy and then proceed to their operation. There's a few arguments on either side. And at my institution, we still go straight to surgery for patients who do have upfront resectable disease. 
the argument is that there hasn't actually been a head-to-head randomized trial as to whether neoadjuvant or adjuvant treatment improves outcomes. But I know that there are a number of studies that are recruiting for this at the moment. So I guess what I'm saying is be aware that controversy exists and I'll run through the different treatment options and the pros and cons or the considerations for each of them. And then I guess you just have to weigh up those considerations, discuss it at an MDT and make an individualized treatment plan for the patient. So let's start by talking about chemotherapy for pancreatic cancer. Let's start with neoadjuvant chemotherapy because this is where a lot of the controversy currently exists. Some of the potential benefits for neoadjuvant chemotherapy is that you're potentially treating early micrometastatic disease. 80% of patients will have recurrence at distal sites and many of these tumors are going to recur early. The other thing is that a quarter of patients with a what's thought to be resectable tumor on imaging will end up having a R1 resection, so they'll have a positive margin at resection. The other consideration is that patients who have complications from surgery are less likely to go on to have their neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And if you don't have your neoadjuvant chemotherapy, then you have a worse overall survival. There's also a concept that well-vascularized tissues have more effective um, treatment with chemotherapy. So giving the chemotherapy before surgery to the area and potentially reduced blood supply to tissues means that you can potentially have more effect. It also gives you a biological trial. So the idea is that it gives you time to gauge the aggressiveness of the cancer, and this allows you to select patients that are going to have the most benefit from surgery. So patients who have stable disease or respond to treatment are going to have a favorable overall oncological outcome and that you're going to avoid doing a highly morbid operation on a patient that is going to have a poor or short survival. We also have better chemotherapy now than we had in the past. And it's also much easier to deliver this chemotherapy neoadjuvantly, so before a patient's gone through uh, the insult of surgery, than it is to give it postoperatively. The other important thing about neoadjuvant chemotherapy falls more into that borderline resectable group in that you can get a downstaging effect of neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So this can make a borderline resectable tumor potentially resectable and also may reduce the rates of an R1 resection, which as we've already talked about is correlated with overall survival. Some of the potential downstages of neoadjuvant chemotherapy is, as I've mentioned, there's no randomized trial saying that this is the right thing to do for patients. A meta-analysis suggests potentially a four-month overall improvement in survival in an intention-to-treat perspective. There's also an argument that about 10% of patients will progress with their tumour prior to resection. So they may, you know, quote-unquote, miss the boat for surgery. And they may either progress locally or develop distant metastatic disease. But this sort of goes along with the tumor biology argument in that if they progress, they probably have bad tumor biology and they would have done very poorly. So actually, you've probably saved them the morbidity of an operation that wasn't going to provide them with significant benefit anyway. 
The other thing is that obviously you need a tissue biopsy prior to giving neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and that can sometimes be quite difficult to obtain. And also these patients are going to need biliary drainage. And there's, um, as we mentioned earlier, some debate around the potential risks of biliary drainage preoperatively. So who should get neoadjuvant chemotherapy? The people that definitely should get it are those ones that have borderline resectable tumors. In that group, it's not really debated. So those are people who have no fat planes around their vessels. They may have abutment of the arteries or involvement of the veins that's reconstructable. A very small number of patients with locally advanced tumors will have significant downstaging with their neoadjuvant chemotherapy and may be considered resectable, but this is Um, very unlikely. There's limited evidence in giving it to upfront resectable patients. And as you can probably guess, lots of debate um, in variation in practice around the world. So I would see what your institution does and have that as the answer in the exam. So what sort of chemotherapy would you give neoadjuvantly? Essentially, it's the same as the adjuvant chemotherapy. The highest response rates and downstaging are seen with modified fulfirinox. Fulfirinox is fluorouracil, leucovorin, irinotecan, and oxaliplatin. And patients should probably have four months of chemotherapy if they can tolerate it. If you're going to give chemotherapy neoadjuvantly, then you also are going to need to restage the patient after they've had their neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And usually this is done with a repeat CA199 level and also a repeat CT scan, one of those pancreatic protocols with multi-phase contrast. There's also some debate around how much chemotherapy you should give and using the CA199 level as a cutoff to determine when you would progress to surgery. So some people say you want to see the number of the CA199 decrease by at least half because in some of the trials there's been evidence that patients who have at least a half reduction have better overall outcome. There's other people that say that you want it to be nearly normal. So again, this is controversial, but obviously the more you get it down, probably the better. The other thing to mention is radiotherapy and whether or not to give local radiotherapy neoadjuvantly. Again, there's not great evidence about this, but there's definitely trials going on in this at the moment. And especially for the locally advanced tumors that do get radiotherapy, you can often see a really good response when this is combined with chemotherapy and radiotherapy. So this may end up being something that's seen more in the future. So the next thing to talk about is adjuvant chemotherapy. So this is post-operative chemotherapy. And as I mentioned, the CONCO-1 trial was kind of the landmark trial that said there is a survival benefit to giving adjuvant chemotherapy in pancreatic adenocarcinoma. So really it should be offered to everyone. The types of regimes that are given include gemcitabine or capcitabine, fulfirinox, or what's called gemabraxane, which is basically gemcitabine combined with paclitaxel. The studies, and I don't know whether we need to know this, but um, for gemcitabine or capcitabine is the SPAC4 trial. And this was basically the trial that said actually giving more types of chemotherapy is going to improve survival. So then the fulfirinox trials were done. um, And again, uh, fulfirinox is 5-FU, leucovorin, irinotecan and oxaliplatin. 
And the study was the PRODIGE24 trial, and this was a landmark trial in 2018 published in NEDGEM that showed an overall survival with fulfirinox, if the patient's fit enough for it, of 54 months compared to 34 months, which pushed out like pretty significantly from the previous outcomes. In patients who aren't fit enough to have modified fulfirinox, then they would get gemcitabine and paclitaxel, also called gemabraxane which has been found to have a survival benefit over gemcitabine or capcitabine alone. In terms of radiotherapy adjuvantly, this isn't something that's given for resected disease with an R0 resection. I've definitely seen in MDT it considered for local control for patients who have an R1 or R2 resection. And also it's definitely, as we've mentioned, indicated in patients um, with irresectable tumours or locally advanced tumours, and also sometimes in patients with borderline resectable tumours to assist with the downstaging. The last situation we may consider chemotherapy is in the palliative setting. And it definitely has a clinical benefit in terms of symptoms, so pain, performance status, and weight. And it does prolong the overall survival, although saying that the overall survival for metastatic pancreatic cancer is only six months without treatment and may be uh, extended to a median survival of around 11 months with treatment. Again, fulfirinox is the treatment of choice if patients are fit enough for it. And if not, then gencytabine or gemabraxane are um, also considered in the palliative setting. A number of other types of treatments, such as immunotherapy and targeted treatments, have been trialed in pancreatic cancer. But unfortunately, there's not been great success for any of these. Uh, so KRAS inhibitors were not found to improve outcomes. EGFR inhibitors were found to improve survival by only a median time of two weeks. And bevacizumab, which is an anti-VEGF inhibitor, and also different types of immunotherapy are currently in trials but haven't been proven to improve outcomes as yet. So surgery is the next treatment modality to talk about. I'm not going to go into the specifics of surgery, but just some general principles. So to start with, tumors that are found in the head, uncinate process, or neck of the pancreas are typically removed with a Whipple's procedure, which is a pancreaticoduodenectomy. So this includes both the head, uncinate process, and neck of the pancreas, as well as the duodenum, which it obviously sits in the C-shaped concavity of, so it needs to be removed with on block. For tumors that are in the body and tail of pancreas, these are removed with an operation called a distal pancreatectomy. In addition to removing the pancreas, a lymph node dissection should also be performed, and it's said that at least 15 lymph nodes should be removed in order to obtain adequate staging information for a pancreatic adenocarcinoma. And so... The lymph node stations that are removed include those along the portal triad, around the pancreatic head, the common hepatic artery, hepatic artery proper, SMA, and GDA. Removing the lymph nodes doesn't have a survival benefit, but provides important prognostic information, and about 80% of resections will end up having positive lymph nodes. As I've mentioned, this surgery is quite morbid, and a number of patients will have complications after surgery. 
The main one that the surgeons worry about is a pancreatic fistula or pancreatic leak. And if it's clinically relevant and the patient's unwell, then that's associated with quite a poor outcome. The risk factors for a pancreatic fistula include having a soft pancreas, a very narrow pancreatic duct, or significant intraoperative blood loss. Other potential complications of pancreatic surgery include bleeding and pseudoaneurysms, thought to be associated with pancreatic leaks and damage to vessels. You can get a bile leak if you've done a Whipple's because you're obviously doing an anastomosis with the bile duct. Delayed gastric emptying is another potentially common complication after a Whipple's because you are also transecting uh, either the duodenum above the tumor or the distal stomach and doing an anastomosis so patients can get issues with the gastric emptying. And there is some controversy over whether to preserve or spare the pylorus. And I think this is surgeon dependent, um, but there was a 2016 Cochrane review that failed to demonstrate any difference between the two operative approaches. Some patients will develop diabetes post-resection and require insulin. Some patients will have exocrine dysfunction, so they'll need Creon. Patients can get dumping syndrome, chronic pancreatitis, and the risk of mortality from a Whipple's resection nowadays sits around the 1% to 2% mark. The last thing to mention is palliative treatments for pancreatic cancer. We've already talked about palliative chemotherapy, but some common presentations or complications with the progression of pancreatic cancer is the development of biliary obstruction or duodenal obstruction. In terms of biliary obstruction, the options include ERCP and stenting or percutaneous transhepatic cholecystostomy with stenting done that way if you can't access from below. And typically in the palliative setting, um, a self-expanding metal stent will be used. The other option is a surgical bypass with creation of a hepaticojejunostomy. In terms of gastric outlet obstruction, the options again include endoscopic treatment with a duodenal stent. The consideration here, though, is that if you put in a duodenal stent, it can then be difficult to access the ampulla. So you need to be thinking about if they're going to also develop biliary obstruction and how you're going to deal with both of those problems. And then the other option is a bypass of the duodenum. So this is usually a Roux-en-Y gastrojejunostomy. The other potential symptom that patients develop is pain. And this is thought to be due to invasion of the celiac plexus. Patients may require multimodal analgesia and opiates, but you can also organize a celiac plexus nerve block or neurolysis. And also sometimes targeted chemoradiotherapy can also help with those symptoms. These patients may also develop exocrine insufficiency and require Creon in order to help maintain their nutrition. Radiotherapy, as I've mentioned, can be used both to treat pain or other symptoms of a locally advanced pancreatic tumour. The other potential question I thought that might come up in the exam is that you're doing a um, laparotomy for resection of a pancreatic tumour and you find metastatic disease. There's no randomized trial about 
if you have irresectable disease, whether stenting is superior to surgical bypass. And in a tweet with one of the consultant surgeons I work with a few months ago, he said that stents and metal stents are very good, but that the chemotherapy is much better nowadays and usually the patient will outlast the lifespan of the metal stent because the tumor will either grow into it or get obstructed. So it's important to consider in that situation when you're there with a a patient with a locally advanced or irresectable tumor and they're open on the table whether you should progress to a bypass surgery. Um, I would say that this is slightly controversial, um, but it's something to consider. So that completes this episode on pancreatic cancer. Once again, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. Please leave me your review. It always makes my day to see that somebody's left a new review and that you're enjoying the podcast. Also subscribe and tell your friends about the program so that other people can listen too. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying!